Our scripture reading this evening comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew from verse chapter 19 and 20, Matthew 19 from verse 16 through Matthew 20, verse 16. This is a section that we read together in whole. Hear now God's word. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into, into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. And what shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first, for... The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle 
and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said, saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the first, from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that is thine and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen." Imagine in your minds a terrible person, a terrible person who has lived a horrible life, a terrible life, as bad as you can imagine, notorious for his sin, his brokenness, his harm to other people, maybe an abuser or a sex offender or a criminal, a murderer perhaps, kills children, somebody terrible. Then at the very end of his life, just in his dying hours almost, he hears the gospel and he believes in Jesus. And with trembling hands, he receives the forgiveness of our Savior. Will God forgive such a terrible person? Of course, we all know theology very well. We've taught it from youth, aren't we? Yes, the answer is yes. God forgives the worst sinners, the Manessas, the worst sinners. He forgives. That's the God we know. Would you also forgive such a person from your heart? If he's sitting next to you in church, it's a little harder than, isn't it? Remember a story I heard, somebody was passing around on WhatsApp, I think, a little message, a clip from Corey Tin Boone. And she was saying, I think if I get the facts right, she was telling about how in, toward the end of her life, she was speaking about her experiences in concentration camps where her sister was killed and, and she suffered terribly. We know the story, I think. And she said up to, coming to her after one of her talks was one of the German army officers that inflicted all kinds of terrible things upon her and her sister and others. And he asked for forgiveness. And she talks about how hard it was to forgive him. Because we're human, aren't we? Somehow or other we hold on to this, sometimes in our hearts. Is it fair that the worst sinner receives the same grace as others? 
Others perhaps in the church all their lives, serving the Lord in this way or that. Maybe a, a mother in Israel who faithfully has served in, her, in the church and in the family. All her life, an example, a prayer warrior. Is it fair that God forgives the worst sinner and receives the worst sinner in the same way as others? Shouldn't God somehow recognize the difference? You see, it's easy, isn't it, in our hearts to struggle with the radicalness of grace. We might not say it, but maybe we struggle with this a bit at times. And Jesus told this parable that we're going to look at together, Matthew chapter 20. Jesus told this parable to instruct his followers, his disciples. That's us, those who follow Jesus, disciples. He told this story to teach important truths about God and his forgiving grace. Our focus this evening is from Matthew 20 in context. Matthew 20, the first uh, 16 verses of this chapter. We could perhaps look just particularly at verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Now, Matthew is writing this gospel tract, the book of Matthew, years later in his life. He was Matthew, or Levi, the one who was a publican associated with sinners, and his lifestyle wasn't exemplary, but Jesus called him. He came to the toll booth there, and he called him, sitting there in the seat of, seat of customs. And now, years later, he's telling this story about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, lessons for life in Christ's teaching in Christ's kingdom, Christ teaching us lessons as well. And this parable is doing the same. It's teaching us lessons, right? A parable is a story. We all identify with stories. A parable is a story that Jesus told, a story with a lesson. And so we will look at the lesson to see how it explains the truth that Jesus Christ wants us to know for kingdom living. Now, this section belongs to chapter 19 as well. The chapter break here, well, you need to break somewhere, but it, it didn't have to be there, I suppose. Because chapter 19, well, it's about the rich young ruler. We, we know that story well, I think. And then there's this dialogue uh, between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, chapter 19 from verse 23 or so, after the young man goes away. And then verse 30, chapter 19, verse 30. Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Chapter 19, verse 30. And you see, that's almost the same, isn't it? Chapter 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last. Included in it is this, this, these bookends, as it were, around the parable that Jesus tells. And he tells this parable to drive home this point. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. A point that he made in dialogue as he's teaching his disciples after the story of the rich young ruler. So you see how it all fits together. Now let's look at this parable, shall we? The story, because we like stories, and it, we can identify. In fact, this story was so common for people in Jesus' day as well. What's the main plot? If you were to retell this story to me, what would you start with? Well, it's about a householder. That's the main character in this story, a householder. Now that word householder maybe is not so common to us. Uh, it's, the idea there is the master of the house. In fact, sometimes this word is translated that way elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus tells several stories about masters of the house or householders. Probably a landowner, 
Uh, an employer, we could say today, someone who was an employer who employed others. Later, it's called uh, he's called the good man of the house. Uh, this is the main character, the master. I'll just call him the master, the master of the house. That's the word that's used elsewhere in, in the Gospels. And so this master... He is, uh, well, there's probably a harvest time or something. He needed, he needed workers. He needed a lot of workers, likely the harvest time. And so he goes out to the public square to hire workers, peace job workers, they call them in South Africa, uh, day workers, not the best workers. They're not your full-time employees. They're just the extras. Maybe we'd call them temporary service type workers here in, in this city. And he goes out in the morning to organize this, early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he, and he hires these workers. And he agrees with them for a penny. Now, that was actually a denarius. You could translate it. That's a day's wage. So whatever a day's wage is, that's the idea here. The master goes out and hires workers, 6 o'clock in the morning, early in the morning, he hires them for a day's wage. And that's what they agreed on. And then, of course, we know the story, right? He goes out again, uh, the third hour, which is 9 o'clock in the morning, he finds workers and he hires them. Must be an important day. Maybe he needed to get the get the crops in. Who knows? Then the the sixth hour, which is noon, he's still hiring people. He still needs more workers. And the ninth hour, too, three p.m. Only three hours left of the day, a twelve-hour day, and he goes out and hires more workers. So far, so good, right? And then at the eleventh hour, with one hour to go, he goes out in the marketplace and he finds still others standing there, and he hires them. And he says, "Come work." work, and I'll pay you something fair. That's, that's the story, isn't it? And then that's, the, that's what happens, and then there is this dialogue at the end of the narrative, the story, this, this grumbling, this disagreement about how the wages should be distributed. And these, some of the workers are actually grumbling. Would you be grumbling too? I think maybe some of us would grumble, right? Six o'clock in the morning, I've been slaving for 12 hours, heat of the day, and these, they get paid the same as me? Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair to me. And they're grumbling. And the master defends himself the way he gives out money. Now, when Jesus told this parable, it was everyone identified. I mean, in South Africa, right near our house, we have what, what you would call a Home Depot, that kind of store. And in the morning when I'm on the way to Mukanyo, there's always just a whole crowd of people just waiting for jobs. It's very common. Unemployment's so high, they're looking for work, and they sit there hoping that someone's going to come and hire them. And you come back again, if you come back again at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, there are a few still lingering because they're still hoping that maybe someone will come along and hire them. And even at noon, and by afternoon, well, they're not there anymore because they didn't work that day. There was no work. And so this story, I can identify with it, certainly, and certainly Jesus' audience identified with it. Very common. Many Galilean peasants were employed in this way, particularly at harvest time. And they're working in, in the fields, this extra workers that were needed uh, to... Um... Actually, they weren't always the best workers, though, usually. They were the poor ones, the short-termers, the migrants. Uh, those are the ones that were hired, particularly at the 11th hour. That's the picture. Unemployed workers waiting to be hired and then getting a job by the master. What's the main point? Why did Jesus tell this story? And whenever you have a parable, you always say, what is the main point? You don't get distracted by the details. You just say the main point, and then the main point explains the whole. So what's the main point? Maybe, maybe it's those grumbling workers. Verse 12, you're not being fair. 
Or maybe we gravitate to verse 6, that passionate plea. Why stand you here all the day idle? There's work to be done. Maybe we can spiritualize that, and I think we can. We will at the end. But I think the main point is seen in the person of the main character. The main character, which is the whole story is really about him and his interaction with these different workers. The main character, the master of the household. Let's, let's look at his actions. He hired workers urgently. They responded. And then he, then he ends. Even, he even ends actually with this final punchline, as it were. Is your eye evil because mine is good? I think that's probably the main point here, isn't it? The master is portrayed as this, this generous rich man, this landowner probably, this householder, who's just busy employing everyone. He's giving everyone a job. And he, and he pays them fair wages, actually more than fair wages. You know, he's not just giving people work. You see, in, in societies where unemployment is so high, just giving people work is being generous. Because many people, when unemployment is 40, 50 percent, most people are, are really looking for good work, aren't they? And so someone who is rich is generous when he employs people. This is a, this is a generous man. But not only that, I think this parable is highlighting how generous he really was. He went out the, the, the ninth hour and even the eleventh hour. He hired people who really, you know, we all know that the last ones to be picked are probably the, the least good, right? He hired people that no one else wanted. And he gave him a job for the day, which was a blessing already. And not only that, he was so generous. He paid them the whole day's wage. Wow. You see, the people in Jesus' day would have said, Wow, what an amazing master. How generous. He gives extra money, more than is required. He gives out of the generosity, his compassion for these these workers. Actually, you might even question his integrity in, in business, right? A business guy with those kind of principles, he's not going to succeed. He's too generous. That's the point of this parable. The main character is generous. He's very generous. Generosity. Characterized by liberality and giving. Just, just giving. Just sharing. Someone showing generosity. Quick to serve. Happy to give time, money, whatever, kindness, food. Generosity is a virtue. Actually, it's a spiritual grace. Generosity is a spiritual grace. And that's how we understand this parable, I think. The master in this parable is a picture of God the Father. The master is a picture of God the Father. He is the sovereign owner of all things, the creator of this universe. There's not a square inch of this universe in which he can't say, mine. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50, and all the beasts of the forest are his. Every person, whether they admit it or not, whether they humble themselves before him or not, he owns them. He is their creator, their master, their judge, their sovereign Lord, and he will judge them on the last day. But that's not the point of this parable. We know that from other passages of Scripture. This parable is highlighting the generosity of God. God is generous. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, 
generously and abradeth not. He doesn't reproach us for asking. He doesn't hold back. He just gives. And he gives. And he gives. Because he, he wants us to know him as being generous. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Scripture often presents God as generous. He gives rain to the just and to the unjust. All those people rebelling against him, he still gives gracious blessings of rain. God is generous. Jesus uses this parable to teach about God's generosity, not just in nature, giving rain to those who don't deserve it, but particularly his special generosity, his gracious, lavish compassion for sinners, his generosity in saving sinners. The rich young ruler had everything he wanted, rich and young and influential. And he had wealth too, it seems. Wealth and abundance. He was rich. And he thought he could earn eternal life. It's interesting how Jesus responds to him. He puts him to the test, doesn't he? And that's the first response. But you see, the bigger picture is the lesson for us, the disciples of Jesus and us who also are learning to follow him. You see, Jesus doesn't challenge the works religion of that rich young man with a harsh rebuke, does he? He actually says, he, in one of the Gospels, he loved him. He challenges works religion, legalistic slavery, he challenges with generosity. That man wanted to earn something. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, no, he missed the point totally. It's freely given because God is generous. Through Christ, he is very generous with grace. Picture the generous love of the Father, God the Father. We sin, and he forgives when we ask. We sin, and he forgives. And we sin again in the same way, and he forgives because he is lavish with grace because of Christ's merits. He's very generous. God doesn't hire workers for his kingdom in order to pay them. He doesn't hire them because he needs them. He already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And all the people in the world will bow the knee before him one day. God employs people like this generous landowner in order to give them mercy, to show them compassion. You know, some of us here might be employers. We have people working for us. And maybe some employees are better than other employees. I think we'd say that. Some people are better workers than others. In fact, some people are just not very good employees at all, are they? You'd rather don't have them around. And you wouldn't hire them again if you had the opportunity. But God is not like that. He calls into his family those of us who least is all of us who least deserve it. And he's long-suffering, even with our 
waywardness and stubbornness and our pride and all the things that always get in the way. He forgives in Christ Jesus. You see, the world thinks differently, doesn't it? We're, we're thinking these are the first and these are the last. These are the best and these are the worst. But God doesn't think that way. In God's economy, it's the other way around. The last will be first, and the first shall be last. That rich young ruler, we might have put him first. But in God's thinking, he was last because he didn't receive, freely receive the generosity through Jesus. The Jewish people thought they were special because they had the oracles, the promises of God. The Jewish people thought they were better than all other nations because, well, they were the chosen people, the, the highly favored ones, the God's people, and they set themselves above, above others. They lived morally according to the Torah, the law of God. They were, they, there was everyone, and then they were the one step above, they thought. But Jesus sets the standard so much higher, doesn't he? In another place in Matthew, he says, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. If you're going to live by those standards, it's got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so those who call themselves first are actually last. And the prostitutes and the harlots and the publicans come flocking into the kingdom following Jesus because they learned what it means that he shows mercy. They were treated first. In God's grace. And so that's what we see here in this parable. God gives lavishly and generously, graciously. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with mine own? The problem is not God's lavish, undeserved grace. But the problem that many people have is the problem they have with God's character. They fail to understand God's graciousness and depict him. You know, how often have we thought of God maybe as this this austere judge who will condemn people to hell or capricious or vindictive, a hard taskmaster? Or maybe we describe sovereign electing love, sovereign grace, election, the doctrine of election. We see it as as harsh and unfair. I've talked with many people like that. But that's not the God that we know from Scripture. And many people are still grumbling against this God. He's not fair. He's not fair. He doesn't recognize the good work I'm doing. Doesn't he know that I'm better than others? And so at the end of the day, just like these workers, the end of the day here in this narrative is like the end of the judgment day, the end of the world. At the end of the 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 day, these so-called first ones are left behind. The key is to understand the master and to serve him. Who are you serving? Who are you serving with your life? Who is your boss? What is he like? Many people are enslaved to a cruel taskmaster. Maybe it's drugs and alcohol or other addictions, pornography, or or some lifestyle that just so traps them in. Many people are in slavery to materialism or other ideologies. I remember I was in in Bali 
Indonesia, and a lady, I was speaking with a lady there. She was Hindu, and she was making these little offering plates. I've used this story before, perhaps. She was making these little offering plates, and I asked her how many she makes each week, each month, because they do all these offerings to the gods there. And I calculated about 5,000 a year she had to make. And she said, yes, we have a hard religion. Those were her words to me. Yes, we have a hard religion. Kind of resigned to it. But you know, many people have a very hard religion. They're busy, busy serving cruel taskmasters, addictions, or the image, the idolatry of success in this world. Or even worse, maybe they're legalistic Christians. And they think that somehow by their religious activity, they are setting themselves apart from the rest. Well, at least I go to church every Sunday, and twice at that. I pray harder than the rest. I'm more pious. If I help other people, you know, then maybe God will notice. Many people have a very hard religion. Who is your master? Who is your boss? Do you know the generosity of our Father in heaven who lavishly gives gifts upon gifts of grace in the name and through the person of Jesus Christ? But I think we have to go farther. We have to listen to the grumble in this parable, the grumble of the discontented workers. Verses 11 and 12. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought or worked but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. It's always wise as an employer to listen to your employees if they grumble, I suppose, because you may learn how to improve, but also you may learn the true nature of their heart. And I think that's what we see here. We see in the grumble of these workers the true nature of their legalistic hearts. What is their problem? What is their complaint? Well, it was deep. It's not fair. God is not being fair. We deserve more than those hired last. We who lived and worked hard in this way, desire more than those who worked just an hour. Can you sympathize? Actually, you know, I used to read this parable. I remember thinking, you know, that's just, I know it's true because it's God's word, but somehow, how do you make this add up, right? Is this, is this, I mean, if you would treat your employees that way, those of you who, who have employees, it wouldn't work, right? It wouldn't work in today's society. So we need to explain this. We need to study the master's answer because the logic of it is is very helpful, not to understand employment practices perhaps for today, well, maybe that too, but even more so to understand the nature of sovereign grace. So the master replies and he says, well, first of all, there was no injustice done. You see, God is not unjust in bestowing grace. There was no injustice, he said, because we agreed for a penny, didn't we? You worked for 12 hours. We agreed for a penny. I gave you a penny. No injustice. I've done exactly what we agreed on. Verse 13. You see, in hell, there will be no grumbling. In hell, there will be no grumbling. Every mouth will be stopped before the judgment seat of God. There will be no grumbling. God is just in all that he does. And that's what the master says here. But more, second, he says, well, verse 15, have, he says, I have the right to do what I want with my own money. 
You see, there's a certain sin in this complaint, isn't there? When, when we may be tempted to say, well, is God really fair? Job was struggling with this, and some of his friends too. Is God fair in allowing me to work harder or to suffer more or to have to endure these circumstances and these trials when other Christians seem to have it all easy? Life is not hard for them, and for me it is. Is God fair? And yet the master is essentially saying, who are we to challenge how God has decided to use what belongs to him? There's a big deal about rights, human rights, all over the world, right? The UN Human Rights Charter and all that, that stuff. Human rights, and everyone wants to defend human rights. But wait a minute here. Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Who owns this world and, and, to whose, and whose law governs it all? You know, we often talk about human rights, don't we? And there is a place for human dignity and such, and that's important. But we have to be very careful in our language, don't we? We have to be very, very careful because what rights do we have? We can't make any demands. God is fair. He is just in every way. And we say we deserve it. Well, no, we don't. We don't. We must be very careful. Like these grumblers, we must be very careful not to sin in this way. And then third, I think it gets to the deeper issue, the jealousy. Their complaint exposes jealousy. Verse verse 20. 20, verse 20. I'm sorry. No. Um, Toward the end there, it says... Verse 15, is thine eye evil because I am good? Is thine eye evil because I am good? That, that word, that actually can be translated, um, that can be translated uh, dealing with jealousy here, begrudging, envy, um, despising his jealousy. That's, that's, that can also be translated in that way. And I think we have to be very careful here because that's what's being exposed, isn't it? Their complaint exposes their evil eye that begrudges the goodness and the mercy extended to others. So God gives us blessings. And then maybe others, he gives more blessings. More blessings. And is it right for us to be jealous when he freely gives what we think maybe, I think maybe are more blessings to others. You see, that exposes an, an internal evil eye or a jealousy that is in the heart of these grumblers. They thought they were better because they worked harder. But all sinners, all sinners are objects of mercy. And I think that's the underlying lesson here. All sinners, all of us sinners who receive God's grace, we're all objects, objects of mercy. We deserve nothing. We deserve punishment because even our best works, even our best righteousnesses, Isaiah says, are filthy rags in the sight of holy God. You see, salvation in Christ's kingdom is a gift of grace, a gift of pure, saving grace, and grace alone. The rich young ruler wanted to do something. 
And that's maybe a trap that we fall into at times too. Even, even once we've known the Lord for many years and we're trying to serve him and then somehow it comes into our mind or maybe even Satan puts it there and we, we, we dwell on it. But look at how my family or how I or how, how the things I've been doing for the church or for the Lord in this way. Look at how that's a little better than others. I remember when I used to do prison ministry, the inmates would always pride themselves. You know, well, I'm not as bad as that person over there, right? At least I'm not as bad as him. Well, you're still in jail, right? But I'm not as bad as him. And that's our human nature, isn't it? Somehow or other, we start to take credit for ourselves. And as soon as we do that, as soon as we do that, we fall into the trap of the rich young ruler, basing our religion on works, on merits. But salvation is received. All of grace, earned 100% by Christ, and then freely given to us. We cannot pay our own way into heaven. By faith alone, by grace alone, the sheer goodness and the gracious generosity of our Savior. There is no place for self-promotion or for jealousy or boasting in heaven. That's why the hymn by Horatius Bonar, the gospel hymn that's printed in the, in the note sheet, I asked them to print it because I think that hymn captures so beautifully this grace, this grace that is so free through the merits of Christ, given so freely by the generosity of our Father in heaven. Bonar writes, he says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Nothing we do can make us right with God. All we can do, as Bonner says in another place, is fall into the arms of grace. God receives sinners, the worst of sinners, the least deserving of sinners, the despised and outcast sinners. He welcomes them, and he receives them freely and forgives them fully. And as we read from the Westminster Larger Catechism, justification is complete through the merits of Christ, 100%. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Consider the sad outcome of those who don't believe this, those grumblers. What does Jesus say in verse 14, or the master, rather, the words of Jesus through the master? He says, take that is thine and go thy way. Actually, it's, it's actually, I think, in the original, quite blunt, intentionally blunt. Take what belongs to you and Go. Take what belongs to you and go. And all those who are still trying to earn credit with God through their workspace religion, this is what the Master says. Take what you've earned and go. How much have you obeyed God's law in the last week? Have you earned any righteousness by your efforts in the last few days? How many good deeds have you been, been doing? How much have you done in the last day? Your prayers, your sighs, your tears. How much have they gotten you in God's sight? Take what you have and go. It's either all or nothing. 
But Jesus doesn't say that with harshness because even at the rich young man, he looked at him and loved him. He's making a point, isn't he? We owe everything to God and he freely gives us everything because our Father in heaven is gracious and generous and lavish with his blessings. He's lavish with his blessings. Are you working to earn salvation still? Or are you receiving God's gracious blessings by faith? Faith alone. What is the lesson for us from this parable? What is the purpose of this parable for us today? I think there are three. Three purposes. One, it is to expose the wretched outcome of works-based religion. The, the religion of the rich young ruler and all those who are still legalistically, legalistically trying to please God with their works. Second, it's to spotlight, to highlight, to showcase God's generosity and grace in Christ. And I think there's a third as well, maybe a minor note, but still important. To motivate us who know God's grace to obedience to Christ. Let me just end with four or five lessons from this parable. The first is the surprising upside-down reality of Christ's kingdom. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We've said that already. God's thoughts are above our thoughts. And his ways of dealing are different than the world's, certainly. And the gifts of grace are distributed so much more, so much differently than maybe the world's criteria, the world's thinking. We think to reward human rights and works-based religion, but God does it all the other way around in order to get the glory for himself. And you see, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to think this way. After the incident of the rich young ruler, they were just amazed. Who then can be saved? But Jesus is teaching his disciples patiently to think not according to the world's thought patterns, but to think gracious thoughts, the gracious thoughts of a generous God in heaven. To think his thoughts after him. That's theology. And that's what Paul is doing in Romans 9 too, I think, which captures some of the same, the same truth. Romans 9 from verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Salvation is all of grace. The last become first. And that's the surprising, gracious election of God. That's the second lesson here. Verse 16, for many be called, but few chosen. And earlier on then, verses 14 and 15, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? There's a focus here on God's sovereign choice. God can choose. He is sovereign. He is very sovereign. No one can question him, as we saw these grumblers 
tried to do. No one can say to him, why is he doing it this way? He does whatever he wants. God is very sovereign. He can choose to save some sinners. He can choose not to save other sinners. He can choose to save the Jewish nation. He can choose to leave the Jewish nation and go to the Gentile nations. God is very sovereign. And we see in the New Testament a shift, don't we, from Jew to Gentile because they rejected their Messiah. Do not despise or overlook this truth. Paul continues in Romans 9, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. There are people who lived and grew up in this church and lived in this church their whole life. And they may soon die as members of this church. But if they don't know Jesus Christ as the only Savior, if they haven't fallen, as it were, into his arms, haven't rejected their own righteousness, their own false religion of good deeds, they will go to hell like the Jews that Paul is speaking of because they're stumbling over the stumbling stone of free grace in Christ alone, by faith alone, in grace alone. It's so sad. And the nations, the Gentile nations despised by the Jews, they're flowing into the kingdom. They're coming from the east and from the west and from the south and from the north and sitting down with Abraham because grace is grace and God is generous. Do you know this God? He makes, he makes himself known to us in the person of Jesus, our Savior. A stumbling stone to some, but our Savior, the Lord, our righteousness. And then third, a third lesson. God's, or rather Christ's, gracious instruction of his disciples. It's so patient. He's so patient. Chapter 19 from verse 25. When the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed. This is the narrative of the rich young ruler, right? Who then can be saved, they said. 26, Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, with God, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Peter, we can identify with Peter, can't we? He's always the one that's quick to speak. What, what are we going to get, Lord, for following thee? We followed thee, not like others. We followed thee, says Peter. Don't you see how the, chapter 20 is an answer to Peter's question? What are we going to get, Lord, for following thee? Verse 28, And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on his throne of glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the tribe, twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. You see, Peter, though, still didn't understand, did he? He was still thinking he was going to get something for his following. For his following. And that's often where we see believers, even sincere, long-life believers, godly believers,
believers who maybe stumble and fall because of pride in their piety, pride in their process of progress and sanctification, pride in how well they're serving the Lord, pride in things that we received all from grace. That's where Peter was, isn't it? But you see, Jesus is graciously teaching. He's graciously teaching his followers, Peter's like us. And he's, he's showing them. He actually sees the sin there too, doesn't he? And he applies the spiritual medicine. He checks their rising pride. And he shows them that it's all about grace. And therefore, we are to be humble. Humble. He corrects their false views of future rewards for good works that lead to superiority, spiritual superiority in the kingdom, which there's no place for. You see, God's generosity is an antidote to legalistic slavery, but it's also the key to understanding how God graciously rewards us when we, by grace, learn to follow him. God's gracious rewards. God is also generous in this. Matthew 19, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, just do the math. We don't have time to dig into this too deeply, but just do the math. Those who have left these things following Jesus, by his grace, called by his grace out of sin, by his grace called into his family, his community of disciples, by his grace taught to follow the master, by his grace served in his kingdom, they will be graciously rewarded. They'll receive these things with persecution. It says, I think it's in Luke, it says these things are received with persecution and will receive a hundredfold and will receive eternal life. That's what the verse is saying. So just think of the return on investment here. Serving the Lord by His grace yields a hundredfold and eternal life. That's what the rich young ruler was looking for, wasn't it? That's what the rich young ruler wanted, and he left not getting it because he stumbled over the stumbling stone of free grace in Christ. But those who have by by grace been taught to follow Christ, the Father is exceedingly generous. Grace upon grace. God's gracious generosity invites us to serve him 100% with our lives. Who are you serving? Who are you working for? Maybe God is calling you into some deeper form of service. 100% of your life. Maybe there's a young man here struggling with a call to ministry. One sort or another. Maybe mission work, evangelism, pastoral ministry. Who are you working for? We serve a very generous master. He invites us to follow him and return on investment. His grace upon grace is amazing. That's not why we follow him. 
We love the giver more than the gift. And we want to serve him because of what he has given. He has given his life 100%. He has died in our place so that we may live. And he calls us. He calls us now, not just the young men, maybe a young woman who is called to serve, young woman who is called to serve the Lord with her life, giving herself for his service in one way or another. And it just isn't the young people. Who are you working for? Will you give your life to the Lord? Where you are now, in the place the Lord has placed you, or in some other vocation, in some other way of service, will you give your life to his servitude to work for this master? Whether it be the, the first, the sixth hour of the day, or the ninth hour, even if it's the eleventh hour of the day, he says, come, why do you stand here idle all the day? There is work to be done in the kingdom. Come. The fields are ripe and ready for harvest. Come deny yourself and take up the cross and follow Christ, our Savior. Come join the reapers, the kingdom seekers, those who love this Jesus, who have learned to love him 100% or are learning really, want to learn to love him 100%. Come, give your life for a higher cause, for kingdom purpose. Come enslave yourself to this very generous master. And so in conclusion, the purpose of this parable is for us to meditate upon the generosity of God and his lavish grace to us in Christ Jesus. He is very sovereign and he is very gracious and we worship him and desire to serve him with our lives. Amen. Almighty God, we pray that thy spirit will call us out of darkness into light. Call us from lazy living and sloppy Christianity into holy zeal and burning passion for thy kingdom, for thy son, to be witnesses of his truth. That thy spirit will call us away from all our selfish ambition and pride. Help us to crucify it and to put thee first and to glorify thee up at the utmost in our lives. Lord, cause us to not be distracted by all these things of the world and to, be, to turn away like the rich young ruler, but rather to follow thee in humble servitude by thy grace because we have been taught to love thee. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt work, continue to work this grace in this congregation for thy glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.